Please turn your attention to Genesis 38. We've been studying the life of Joseph, which will take us to the rest of spring and summer. And I have suggested to you by studying Joseph's life, it helps us live into a story of indestructible hope. And this morning we come to Genesis 38. And before I read it, I want to give you a quick preview and answer some questions that you may have coming into this chapter. Uh, first is, why is Genesis 38 included in the story of the life of Joseph? Because Joseph is not mentioned at all in this chapter. It is about Joseph's brother, Judah. But as you know and will discover, Judah plays a very important role in Joseph's life. And Genesis 38, therefore, explains this character development of Judah and who he becomes. Some of you, as I read through Genesis 38, may wonder why it's even in the Bible, God is not mentioned anywhere in this chapter. It reads almost like a secular story. It's probably the most sexually explicit uh, chapter in Genesis and could easily be the plot line for a Netflix show. It's got it all. It's got power, sex, prostitution, questionable ethics, deception, death. And if you're sitting next to your child this morning, be prepared for awkward questions about Onan's sin. Now that your interest is peaked, let me read for you Genesis 38. <laughs> At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Ajalam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her, and became, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Ajlamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. 
He asked the men who live there, where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who live there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitutes here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Sarah. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you with anticipation, recognizing that even this is your word, and you have things to teach us. We pray that we would have open ears and open hearts. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you came in this morning thinking that the Bible is basically a collection of family-friendly, inspiring, inspiring, heartwarming moral tales like Aesop's fable, uh, hopefully Genesis 38 will persuade you otherwise. It is a sordid tale of power and sex and deception. I suggest to you that Genesis 38 is a slice right out of our world. I recently read another story, the story of Kaylee Perrin, Entitled this, I was an 18-year-old addict carrying a drug dealer's baby. Kaylee Perrin was born in 1989 into a dysfunctional home in Glendale, Arizona. Her family was marked by alcohol and drug abuse that went back generations. Her father was in and out of prison. Her mother got pregnant at 19 after running away from her abusive father. So Kaylee was raised by a single mother who had live-in boyfriends and moved frequently. Having experienced the horrors of drug and alcohol abuse, Kaylee vowed that she would never give in to drugs. But desperate for love, she became sexually active at 13. She got hooked on alcohol from one drink at a high school party, and soon cocaine and methamphetamines followed. By age 15, Kaylee had quit high school, left home for a friend's trailer, which was crawling with cockroaches and mice, where she lived with her 19-year-old boyfriend. When her mother moved to Clinton, New York, a small village in upstate New York, Kaylee moved with her. She found a job at a local pizza shop, but again, fell in with the wrong crowd. She started dating a new boyfriend, a drug dealer named Kirk. She moved into his apartment where they drank and did drugs together. When she started struggling with nausea that didn't go away, her mom forced her to take a pregnancy test, and Kaylee discovered that she was pregnant. She broke down in tears. She was in no shape to give birth or care for a child. She was 18, heavily addicted, with no car, no job, and no money. I would suggest to you that's a modern-day version of Genesis 38. And my friends, here's why I think we can relate. There are chapters in our lives when life gets so morally tangled and dark 
that there seems to be no hope of untangling it and no way out. And even more, God seems silent and nowhere to be seen. My friends, this is the world of Genesis 38. And yet, I think Genesis 38 teaches us that in this larger story of indestructible hope, there is grace for rebels and victims. For us to see that, I want to look at three things with you in this chapter. The rebel, the victim, and the grace. The rebel, the victim, and the grace. First, let's look at the rebel. At the beginning of Genesis 38, Judah leaves his brothers and goes down to stay with Hira in Ajalam, a Canaanite city. And that does not bode well. The fact that Judah goes down is an indicator of his spiritual direction and condition. He leaves his family and moves to Canaan, the land of their spiritual enemies. And at a deeper level, Judah is turning his back on God and his promises to Abraham and his offspring. From the last chapter, we've learned that Judah is basically a cold-hearted, greedy, and selfish man. He's the one who suggested to his brothers that they sell Joseph away for money. And then they dipped his robe in blood so it looked like a wild animal killed him, bringing their father's head down in grief. This was the kind of man Judah was. He cared more about money than his brother. Thought nothing of inflicting sorrow on his own father. When Judah moves to Canaan, he turns not just from God, he turns toward the values and lifestyles of the Canaanites. He marries a Canaanite woman. His great-grandfather Abraham made his servant swear that he would not get a wife for his son from the Canaanites. Isaac instructed Jacob, you must not take a wife from Canaan. Judah grew up knowing the dangers of marrying a Canaanite woman being tempted away from God, and yet he still marries a Canaanite woman named Shua. Verses 2 and 3 describe how it happens. In quick order, he sees and then takes and sleeps with, and then she conceives a baby. It's a way of suggesting that Judah is not only selfish and greedy, he's also lustful. He has an eye for beautiful women. Shua bears him a son named Ur, and then a second son named Onan, and then a third son named Shelah. Ur grows up, and Judah takes a wife for him, like father, like son. It's a Canaanite woman whose name is Tamar, which means palm tree, suggesting that she had a beautiful figure. The problem with the marriage, though, is that Ur is so wicked that God puts him to death. According to Leverite law, that means in Deuteronomy 25, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. In other words, Onan's responsibility to his older brother is to marry Tamar, to help her to have a son to carry on his older brother's name. Even Judah says this to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty. But Onan is wicked like his brother and selfish like his dad. He knows that Tamar's son will not belong to him. He knows that Tamar's son will have firstborn privileges and get a double portion of Judah's estate that would otherwise go to him. And so he sleeps with Tamar, but he utilizes the oldest form of birth control to make sure that she doesn't get pregnant and have offspring. In other words, he puts his own desires before God and his brother and their family. 
What he does is wicked in God's sight, and so the Lord puts him to death. Tamar is now a widow twice over. Leverite law, in turn now, says that Shelah, the third son, has a responsibility to marry Tamar and produce offspring for his brother. Judah acknowledges this and says to Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until Shelah grows up. But he has no intention of giving his third son to Tamar because he assumes she's cursed. As an indication of his spiritual insensitivity, insensitivity, he doesn't stop to think that it might be his own son's wickedness as a cause for their death. He considers Tamar damaged goods, and there's no way he's going to give his third son to her. So he tells Tamar to go back to her father's house to wait. Now add deception to selfishness, greed, and lust. Shua dies, leaving Judah in a dark place. He has left his homeland and gone down to Canaan. He's left his brothers. He's lost his wife and two sons. His selfishness, greed, and lust and deception have ruined his family. And he has no heir on the horizon. Judah's the rebel. And because of that, his family is in a dark, tangled mess. My friends, I think Genesis 38 shows us a picture of what the Bible calls sin. Sin is rebellion against God. Whether you do it actively and you shake your fist against God or you do it passively and you ignore God and you turn your back on him. Sin is not just breaking rules. It's breaking a relationship. It's turning your back on God. And the consequence of that is that life begins to disintegrate. When the prodigal son leaves his father's house, He squanders all his wealth on wild living and his life begins to disintegrate in a distant land. When you turn your back on the sun, the source of light, warmth, and life, the consequence is your life will begin to go dark. Likewise, when Judah turns his back on God, the source of light and life and blessing, his life begins to go dark and to disintegrate. When we rebel against God, our life begins to disintegrate and go dark. That's the rebel in this passage. Secondly, let's look at the victim. If Judah is the rebel, then Tamar is the victim. Consider what has happened to her. She has been widowed by her first husband, who's so evil that even the Lord puts him to death. She's abused and exploited by her second husband, Verse 9 says, whenever Onan sleeps with her, he denies her offspring. As a way of saying, whenever he sleeps with her, he's only out for his own sexual gratification. Whenever he does this means it's not one time, it's repeated over and over again. Tamar is abused and exploited by her second husband. When he dies because he's so wicked, uh, Tamar now is a widow twice over. By her cultural standards, damaged goods. Probably struggling with shame. Trapped at the lowest levels of society with no one to provide for her and no future. Eventually, Tamar realizes that she is being deceived because Sheila has grown up and has not been given to her. And she's stuck in her father's house, unable to marry anyone else. And so when she hears that Judah is headed towards Timnah for the sheep shearing festival, which is a time of celebratory drinking and sexual temptation in Canaan, Tamar comes up with a shrewd and risky plan based on knowing Judah's weakness for beautiful women. 
She takes off her widow's clothes and dresses as a prostitute with a veil to disguise herself. Judah comes by, takes her as a prostitute, and true to his character, approaches her for business and says, come now, let me sleep with you. Tamar has this little conversation with him and says, how much will you pay? And he says, a young goat for my flock. She says, only if you give me something as a pledge. And he says, what shall I give you? And very shrewdly, she says, your seal in his cord and a staff in your hand. His seal was like a stamp that you press into wet clay as kind of your signature, as a personal ID. And his staff was a symbol of authority. It was carved to the top in a way that, that marked his ownership. It was leave it like leaving his driver's license and a credit card with her. He was leaving his valuables with an unknown prostitute for a few moments of pleasure. Some things don't change over thousands of years. He sleeps with her and goes on his way. When he realizes what he's done, he's, of course, eager to get his seal and staff back because if it comes to light that he lost his driver's license in a brothel, he'll be the joke of the town. So he sends his friend Hiram as his fixer to pay off this woman with a goat and to get back his seal and staff. But as you know, Hiram can't find the woman. And all the local men says there haven't been any shrine prostitutes here. And so Judah says the only thing he can say, let the woman keep what she has. We tried. Let's bury this. and Forget about it. What Judah doesn't know is that he slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and she conceived. And after three months, she starts to show, which is not good for a betrothed woman. Judah finds out that Tamar is, is guilty of adultery and pregnant, and he says, bring her out and have her burned to death. The double standard is unbearable. He's guilty of sexual sin himself with a prostitute. When it looks like Tamar is guilty of sexual sin, he says, burn her to death. Doesn't even wait to get the facts. He doesn't even settle, go for stone. He goes for something more severe, burning to death. He sees this as an opportunity to get rid of Tamar to free his own son from this betrothal. But of course, Tamar has an ace in her hand. As she is being led out to death, she sends word to Judah. I am pregnant by the man who owns this seal and this staff. See if you recognize them. It is the bombshell of truth. The evidence is undeniable. Judah was the man who slept with her and the child is his. And amazingly, Judah does not deny it. He does not defend himself, does not excuse himself, does not rationalize. He owns up to his own sin and he confesses. He says, Tamar is more righteous than I. And he repents, does not sleep with Tamar again. Tamar is a victim who takes bold, risky, questionable action. The question I have for us this morning is this. Is Tamar an unlikely hero or a desperate victim? What do you think? I think if I took a poll of this room, I think there would be divided opinions. But consider this. Later laws in Leviticus, of course, forbade a man to sleep with his daughter-in-law. But there are indications that Leverett Customs in Tamar's day allowed a father-in-law to help raise an offspring for his deceased son. It's possible that Tamar did nothing wrong according to the laws of her day. But the reality is the Bible does not condemn or condone what Tamar does. But it does hint that she is an unlikely hero. Judah says it himself. She is more righteous than I. 
Consider the deeper significance of what she has done. Tamar commits herself to Israel more than her own Canaanite family and people. Like Ruth, she rejects her father's house in order to remain loyal to Judah. Moreover, Tamar is willing to risk her life to keep Judah's family going. She knows that the penalty for prostitution is death, and she's still willing to take that risk. A Canaanite woman is more committed to continuing the line of Judah and of God's people than Judah himself. Tamar is an abused victim who masquerades as a prostitute, and yet God works through her as an unlikely hero. I wonder if you have categories for this. See, this isn't the only place where the Bible affirms a person while not condoning everything that they do. David is called a man after God's own heart, but of course it doesn't condone his adultery with Bathsheba. Moses is a prophet who speaks with God face to face, but of course the Bible doesn't condone his murder of an Egyptian. The reality is there are no perfect heroes in the Bible. God only uses weak and flawed men and women for his redemptive purposes. Where our culture cancels people who have done shameful things in the past, God wants to redeem and use. See, if truth be told, if people dug around our past and dug into the things that we have said and that we have done, who could stand? And so we've got to talk about grace. So third, let's talk about the grace for rebels and victims. When the time comes for Tamar to give birth, she doesn't give birth to just one son, but two sons. It's a double blessing. Judah's line will not end. It's God's grace that he gives sons to the rebel Judah who doesn't deserve it, and to the victim Tamar who has lost all hope. There is greater grace for Judah. He begins his life as a selfish, greedy, lustful, and deceptive man. But the first glimpse of change is in this chapter when he's confronted with his own sin, instead of denying it or defending himself or deceiving others, he owns up to it and confesses and repents. And that begins, in this chapter, the gradual transformation in Judah's life, setting us up for Genesis 44 in the future, when Judah and his brothers go to Egypt to get grain in the famine from their brother Joseph, whom they don't recognize. Joseph, as a test of his brothers to see if they've changed, gives them grain but says, in return, you must leave with me, your youngest brother, Benjamin. And it's Judah that pleads for Benjamin. He says to Joseph, I made a promise to my father that I would bring my youngest brother back, and if I don't do this, it will bring his, his head down in sorrow. Take me instead and let Benjamin go free. This is the same man who didn't hesitate to sell Joseph off for his own benefit, without regard for his father. Now protecting his youngest brother for the sake of his father at his own cost. Joseph sees this and is moved to tears. The selfish, greedy man has now become a self-sacrificial and compassionate brother. God's grace transforms Judah. And it begins here in Genesis 38 with his confession and repentance. And my friends, there is greater grace for Tamar because she has a breakthrough son. That's what the name Perez means. It means breakthrough. Perez is a breakthrough of grace. 
Because ten generations down from Perez, he will be the father of King David, who will be in the line of a much greater king, Jesus Christ. My friends, this is why Jesus Christ is in the line and house of Judah. This is why Tamar and Perez are in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew 1. Tamar, the victim, the Canaanite widow, the one who is abused, exploited, shamed, and trapped, becomes a mother of Jesus. In such a way that Jesus now is the breakthrough son that we can all have. Jesus is the breakthrough son, the breakthrough to grace, the breakthrough to a new direction in life, the breakthrough to a life of purpose and meaning, the breakthrough to a story of indestructible hope. It's what Kaylee Perrin discovered. At rock bottom of her life, through the urging of her parents, she went to a rehab center to sober up and get clean for her unborn child. Her boyfriend, Kirk, miraculously decided that it was, he was ready to be a dad and wanted to raise the baby together. He stopped using and selling drugs and started looking for a real job for the first time in years. He proposed to Kaylee, and they had their daughter, Presley Olivia. But not all was better. Kaylee continued to battle relapses with alcohol and drugs. She discovered that even a baby could not fill the void in her heart. And so finally, one night in December 2010, lying on the floor holding a Bible, Kaylee cried out for forgiveness. Even though she had gone to a church over the years, she had never fully surrendered her life to Christ. And that night, she did. Kaylee became a new creature in Christ. She was able then to go on to say no to alcohol and drugs, and her boyfriend, Kirk, also surrendered his life to Christ. Since then, They've been blessed with five beautiful children. Kaylee ends her story with these words. While caring for our children, I help women struggling with unplanned pregnancies, abusive relationships, and addictions. My life may have been a mess, but now I am a daughter of the king, forgiven and clean. My friends, there is grace for rebels and victims which at some level we all are rebels and victims, sinners in rebellion against God. People have been sinned against, victims of circumstances beyond our control. And very often it's both. It's both rebel and victim. How do rebels experience God's grace? Judah shows us. It's through confession and repentance. Judah's change begins when he doesn't deny or deceive, or defend himself, but owns up to his sin. She's more righteous than I. It's my fault. I'm the one who sinned. Confession is owning up to our sin, and repentance is seeking a new direction. Judah begins to become a compassionate, self-sacrificial man. By God's grace, we don't have to be defined and reduced to our past sin. By God's grace, we can change. How do victims experience God's grace? First, look at Tamar. You're not the only one that is a victim of your circumstances. Look at how God uses Tamar in her brokenness and darkness as a way of being reminded that even in the darkest chapters of life, when God seems utterly absent, God's grace is quietly at work. And if you surrender to him and submit your life to him, 
He can use your brokenness and weakness for his redemptive purposes because he gives you and me a breakthrough son in Jesus Christ who is a doorway to indestructible hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this dark chapter of Genesis 38 because it's a reminder that even in our darkness and brokenness, your grace continues to be at work in ways that are unknown to us but known to you. Lord, help us in our disobedience, if we're rebelling against you, to confess and repent and seek a new direction in life. Lord, if we are in despair, tracked by circumstances we cannot control, Lord, would you help us to trust in your grace? Your, Your grace is writing a story of indestructible hope that if we can submit to you, you'll use our lives in ways that we never imagined. Thank you for your amazing grace that saved wretches like us. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.